Hello and welcome. The Portavud Institute for the Study of the Iranian World welcomes you to another episode of our podcast, Legacies of Ancient Persia. Join us as we further explore the many legacies of ancient Persia and its relevance to global patrimony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Legacies of Ancient Persia. This week, our guest is Dr. Ali Musavi, a Portavud research scholar and adjunct professor of Iranian archaeology at UCLA. In this episode, we discuss his experience growing up in Iran with an archaeologist father and how it shaped his career, creating the Archaeological Gazetteer of Iran for the Portavud Institute, his experience working for UNESCO, and about the possibilities for digitally rendering ancient sites like the Getty's Persepolis Reimagined. We hope you enjoy this episode, and if you like what you hear, please give our show a five-star rating and review us on Apple or Spotify. Thank you so much for joining me this morning, Ali. I am very happy that we are here together and able to have this chat. So I would like to ask you how you got into the field. Thank you so much, Lexi, for having me for this podcast. In this field, actually, I grew up in this field. My father was archaeologist, a field archaeologist, and he, he took me whenever he could and wherever he could to his digs. And you know different different journeys uh, within within Iran. So I met uh, different sites, you know, different regions. It's very contrasted, Iran. You know, country of mountains, deserts, plains, valleys. So we have different sites. And he he almost I think that yeah he he dug a hole in almost every every site or a large number of sites in Iran. Sometimes he would do a survey, for example, in the Caspian. He conducted a series of surveys for four years in the mountainous region of the Caspian, south of the Caspian Sea, in Iranian Gilan, basically. So I grew up in the field and I got interested. I I had an interest in history. I, I loved history. I've always loved history. So I started reading history books. My dad had a had a library, large library. Art history, history, uh, history of religion, he was interested in literature, etc. So that was my basic source of learning. And then I, I just traveled with him, uh, met a archaeologists, you know, foreign and Iranian archaeologists uh, at that time in the 70s and even in the 80s. So then to pursue my studies, after a while, I, I knew that I was going to be an archaeologist. I was going to study archaeology. I was very lucky to get a fellowship in France to begin my studies in art history, prehistory and archaeology in France, University of Lyon. And then I completed my studies. Later, I went to UC Berkeley and got a PhD, studied under David Stronach, one of the leading archaeologists of the time. He was the director of the British Institute in, in Tehran for 20 years. He's the excavator of Pasargade and specialist of the Kemenid Empire, Kemenid archaeology. Anyway, and then I ended up here in LA doing museum work at LA County Museum. I was a curator for, for a few years. And then I moved gradually to, to teaching and research and from, I think, since 20, 2018, I'm permanently here at UCLA. 
That's a wonderful, wonderful path. I mean, and also how fortunate to have a father who is into archaeology. Now, <laughs> as a fellow lover of history, ancient history, did you always gravitate toward material, the material culture side because of the influence of your father? Or did you ever consider going into the more philological side and doing texts and not doing material culture? No, I've always loved material culture, monuments. When I was two, I I, visit, I, I don't remember that that visit, but that was that was my first visit of the ruins of Persepolis. So, and I went back to the site several times. I think I remember it when I was six. I I clearly remember uh, my journey at Persepolis when my father was was excavating there in seventeen. 72 or 73. So I, I'm interested in text. I I, I I loved reading text, but I didn't want to be, you know, I didn't want to focus on, on text and epigraphy. You know, library work, yes, this is part of our job, but then I've always loved to go to field, travel and, you know, and discover. <laughs> I mean, also growing up in that time, I believe that's when Indiana Jones first came out and it was very popular... And people had this idea of being able to go and explore and see a site and <laughs> hopefully make a grand discovery. Maybe, maybe. Yeah, Indiana Jones came much later. I think that the first one came out in, in the 90s, right? Or in 80s, late 80s or in the 90s. And I was graduating at that time, yeah. I was I was getting I was getting my my masters. Okay, so a bit late. So it's fine because it means you get to say you came before all of the, the rush. Yeah, I'm pre-Indiana Jones. <laughs> so you essentially knew what to do and you knew archaeology before Indiana Jones made it quote-unquote cool. Yeah, more or less, I, I knew. I mean, yes, under the influence of my dad, but he, he never told me what to do in life. He never imposed anything. But I think that he had a lot of influence on my, on my career and future. And I think that the another, let's say, event that, that influenced me was my, my trip to Susa in 80, I think 83 or 82, where I visited for the first time this beautiful ancient site of Susa with the French castle. And I met Jean Perrault, uh, who was the, the French, used to be the head of the French delegation, archaeological delegation in Iran as great archaeologist. And uh, so uh, my meeting with Pero was 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 extremely critical for my future studies in France. So he he just suggested that I should go to France and, and study archaeology if I could, you know, learn and speak French, which I did. <laughs> well, it's it's interesting. I mean, and and it seems very influential. And in, and in knowing what I do of how the field of archaeology and ancient history and all these things sort of developed and how basically English and French and German are the big languages you need because these are the languages of the original study. But the decision to go and study in France on this suggestion or continuing studies in the U.S., like, was this a difficult decision? Was it, is it easy or hard to study archaeology in Iran if you had wanted to? Were the in, sort of the institutions that kind of had what you needed, were they outside of Iran? So is it more necessity or personal preference? 
I think I think both. And I, I had this chance, opportunity to go abroad and study in Europe that gave me a, a chance, a sort of multifaceted sort of studies, something I couldn't, I could not have got in or received in Iran, in a, an Iranian university or institution. Although I, I knew almost everybody, professors, I worked with some of them in Iran, some of my, my father's colleagues and friends. So the, the, yes, there is a, there is a, I, w- I would say, well-established archaeological curriculum in Iranian universities. The University of Tehran was the, was the leading institution since 1950s or let's say late 40s, I would say. But it was a it was a difficult decision for me, you know. I, I didn't, it, and France was not a familiar country. Its language, of course, I was. I knew I loved reading, for example, French novels, Les Misérables, for example, Victor Hugo and Balzac, etc. But then learning French, writing in French, I'm sure you know that was something else, and it took me years to let's say to master the language in writing and speaking. It was a difficult decision, yeah. But a very nice one, I think, because it, it it turned out pretty well. I mean, look at where you, you are now. Yeah, another influential individual I should mention is an Iranian colleague, archaeologist and art historian named Shahir Adl. He passed away a few years ago, sadly. But he's the one who mentored me in a way, you know along with another very dear friend, archaeologist, French archaeologist, Rémy Bouchala, who was in Lyon. So they both, in a way, chaperoned me and mentored me while I was studying in France. Oh, that's wonderful. I mean, you got you got very lucky, and growing up and being able to go to these sites, I'm sure that many of us would love to go to. I mean, that's just incredible. Would it have shifted the trajectory or made any difference if you had not been able to go and see these sites at such a young age? I really don't know. But I think that I'm very happy to have seen them all. And I would I would love to go back and see them once again. You know, you should always go back to a, to a city you had visited before, you visited before, uh, to see a story, read a book that you you have read before. So maybe, I don't know. Well, I don't know. I mean, in, in your opinion, you know, is it possible? Can, can we, I don't know how easy it is with, with travel being, with, with some restrictions and whatnot these days. But, you know, if, if one really wanted to go, can, can we still go to these sites today and see them? I mean, I don't know. I don't think we can, you know, join any digs, but can we still go see them? Well, in theory, you can join tours. There are tours. I'm not sure if there are still tours at this time. But then I think that, yeah, there are tours. You can go and visit big touristic sites like Persepolis, the city of Isfahan, Pesargadi, and those sites. But not specifically archaeological sites. But yeah, there are tours. Yeah, yeah you, can, you can take one of those tours. Wonderful. Well, for those who cannot get over there physically for whatever reason, one of the projects that I know you've been working on here at the Porta Food Center is the Gazetteer. And I'm hoping that you can explain to our audience just sort of what it is and sort of the idea behind creating it. Yes. The idea behind creating it is or was or is my my ignorance. You know, Iran is said to have 300,000 
archaeological sites, uh, ruined monuments or monuments in, in good state of preservation in cities, or simply archaeological mounds or structures scattered all over the country. So I know some of them. Dare to say that I, I know hundreds of them, but there are thousands I don't know. And that's that has always been one of the challenges in Iranian archaeology. I know that a group of archaeologists in Iran began gathering information for an archaeological atlas of Iran in the 1980s, but I'm not sure of any any outcome, you know. So the idea I, I had had for years, and then with the creation of the Pudawood Center and a series of discussions with Professor Rahim Shaigan, head of the Pudawood Center. So we decided to to actually, let's say, materialize this dream of putting archaeological sites on a sort of um, digital platform. And I think that time was was ripe, or was was we were in a good time, because of the possibilities we have now with the internet and a digital format. So this is about the the beginning of the project. The archaeological gazetteer is is more than an address book. Of course, a gazetteer means an address book, gazette, but this is more than that. It consists of, there are two main components in the gazetteer. Uh, one is the map. You can go and browse archaeological sites based on what you see on the map. And another component or section is uh, the catalog of sites. You can go and search sites. And we are we are in the beginning of a, a very long road, but I think that we have had a very good, a very good beginning by putting more than 100 or about 200 sites now in in the gazetteer. I mean that's one it's a wonderful project. I've seen it in in action. I think it's a it's a wonderful idea. And I'm curious how big do you eventually hope for your catalog to become? Are you going to try to get like Every site, are you going to hope that, like, is this a project that you see being sort of indefinite, like as new sites are discovered, you can add them? So like, how long do you want to do this? Well, it sounds like a never-ending project, but I think that I'd be satisfied with with uh, something around three to 4,000 sites, archaeological sites. Mostly, my idea is to put all the internationally known archaeological sites, such as Persepolis, Pasargadi, Susa, those big sites. And, you know, our scope, our vision goes beyond the present borders of Iran. So we are looking at cultural, let's say, Iran, expanding our, our catalog to uh, sites in Mesopotamia, Iranian sites in Mesopotamia and the Caucasus, in present-day Afghanistan or Transoxiana, Central Asia, and um, Anatolia, Turkey, or even Egypt. You know, some of my colleagues are working on some Persian sites in Egypt now. Yeah, I think that I'd, I'd be happy to see some three to 4,000 sites. You know, there was a similar, there is a similar project. Uh, this was done in the late 70s or early 80s. That's called the Archaeological Gazetteer of Afghanistan. This was done by a British archaeologist, Warwick Ball. I would like to, to praise him for his, you know, his wonderful work. 
because he, he did it on his own without the help of internet at that time. And he cataloged around 2,000 sites. But this is in print. This is a printed version. You cannot update the data. So our gazetteer is a living thing. You can always go back to catalog entries and update them. If there's a new discovery or something, new publication, you can always update them. So that's the, uh, I think that's the advantage of living in a digital age. Yeah, no, it definitely does present us with a lot of amazing opportunities. And I guess so with this and because we, we have the ability to update it and as you mentioned, wanting to expand beyond just what we would consider the borders of ancient Persia and, and sort of go all over the map. Who do you anticipate being able to actually make updates to this site? Is it going to be yourself, other academics, maybe people from outside the academic sphere? Well, for the timing, it's only me. I'm in charge of updating, doing research, and then uploading, and then updating the the entries. But I would like to train, I think that we will, we will train someone to do the, the updating and let's say WordPress background job for the Gazetteer in, in coming months. Wonderful. Well, I mean, I'm sure this is wonderful and I, and I hope you keep doing the project for a long time. I mean, eventually though, if you were to eventually not do the project yourself, you know, is this something that would hopefully live on its own and... Is this something that would be student-run forever? Yeah, I think that if I'm not here tomorrow, it's straightforward. I mean, the, the, I, I, I've written up a, a, a sort of instructions. So I think I can train someone in a matter of hours to do the, the WordPress and background job and dealing with the map. So I can do that. Yeah, this this will leave. I think that I'll leave <laughs> my my professional or even lifetime career. I I would hope so, because it's a fantastic project that I would like to see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It will, you know, know, others will come and we'll do a better job. Maybe we'll have much more possibilities to do things that we cannot do these days with the internet. Yeah. I mean, do you ever foresee maybe the project taking on or opening up to input from like the general public? Like if someone has discovered a new site or something or would like to suggest a site that is not seen, like do you anticipate maybe having an avenue for someone to sort of reach out and say, hey, there's this site. Have you, I don't see it here. You know, this is what I know. Here's where you can find more info if you'd like to add it. Like is is sort of that outreach level eventually going to be considered? Yes, indeed. I, I have reached out colleagues around the world who work on Iran, and they they contributed to to the Gazetteer's catalog, and I'm thankful. But usually, I I invite people, but I would love to receive uh, suggestions. I haven't received any, but yeah, if there is a site, if if you knew you know a site that's interesting, you can suggest it. And I'll I'll consider it, of course. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, we've heard a lot about the contributors to it. And now I'm curious, who is the ideal audience that you would like to attract to use your database? I mean, do you foresee this being mainly for students and academics? Is this for general public? 
yeah, who 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 would you like to see use the database? Yeah, let's start with academics. Of course, academics are first front, but then the entries are not exhaustive. We want to give the essential information about the site, a few illustrations, its exact location. This is important because some of those sites, even I, I didn't know where where is this site or where is this map in the middle of nowhere. So I think that the geographical location is very important. But then I think that in a sort of lower level or other level would be students. You know, it has an educational aspect, this gazetteer. And I use it in my 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 classes and students use use it and they're they're happy. And then the third level would be the the general public. Of course, they can go, it's it's free access. They can go and and you know consult and see the sites. The main component of of the entries in the catalog, I think, is the geographical location and then the bibliography. If you want to expand your knowledge about a site, you go to the bibliography and you find those sources. Wonderful. So I I love how it is open for everyone. Obviously, yes, it is more ac- academic in nature. But one of the things that I love that makes or that helps make academia seem a little more accessible to laymen, let's call them, let's say, is when we have things that are open access. Now, however, that does not come without challenges, right? I mean, when you make things open access, you never know who exactly may be wanting to use resources. So I think one of the questions foremost on my mind, and maybe other people would be wondering as well, is, you know, do you intend this to always be very open access or do you foresee potentially in the future needing to figure out some sort of restrictions just in case there are any nefarious people who would like to use such a database to find exact locations and perhaps not do wonderful things with that information? Well, the basic concept is to make this available for everybody. You know, of course, you can go and buy a a sharp knife and do a wonderful recipe, cook something. And then you can do crazy things, cut your finger, for example. So I think that we are not here to, to, to prevent free access to the knowledge. And I'm sure that with this disseminating idea, eventually the, the goodwill will prevail. And, and I personally, I don't know anybody, let's say any antiquities dealer or evil-minded individual using a digital database to to go to those sites and dig. You know, I've I've never known such a such a method for for uh, for those those people. No, it's going to be free access. I think. Well, I think that will make a lot of people happy because I know that when talking about academia, a lot of people do initially when they find something that's open access. You know, there's always I think that worry that oh, but will this be here forever? Will I ever be stopped? So I think it's quite gratifying to hear that, you know, you intend your your wonderful resource to be open access to, to everyone. So that way, you know, they can search sites to their heart's desire. And I'm, I'm wondering, you know, are there any non-academic entities that would also benefit from using your database? I mean, 
I'm trying to think like what other cool things could come of such a project in terms of finding and cataloging sites. You know, is this something that like the UN could use? Could we be marking sites for UNESCO, for cultural heritage? Like, uh, like what other things I'm wondering, can we, can we do with, with such an amazing database? I'm glad you mentioned UNESCO because I worked for UNESCO for a while and I, I contributed to the registration of sites on the World Heritage list of UNESCO. Yes, of course, one of another aspect is conserving, preserving these sites ritually, you know, and this is another, I think, a good thing of the Gazetteer. Another group of people who can benefit from the Gazetteer are tourists and tour guides. So for tourism, I know that Turkey, in Turkey, they they made a not a gazetteer, but a picture site for the archaeological ruins and remains, you know. So, yeah, tourism is another aspect. Preservation, conservation is another field we are, we are touching on. And I think that there'd be more education is, is another thing I mentioned, students and, you know. Oh, that's so wonderful. Well, I'm I'm very happy that you mentioned that you worked for UNESCO. So I think for those who are not familiar with you or your work, yeah, what were you actually able to do? And and is the process for registering a site hard? Well, actually, my my mentor, Dr. Shahir Al, who was a research director in France, got me involved in a way in in the late nineties and early two thousands. The Iran government, the Cultural Heritage Organization, decided to include a number of sites on the World Heritage List because up to that time we had three sites registered on the list. Now I think that we have something like 20 sites now registered. So, in a way, my mentor initiated this and he asked my help and i was i was very very fortunate i was very lucky to be able to work with him yes it was a, it is a complex process there is a long form and there is a process of you have a descriptive section and then you have a conservation monitoring and gathering all this information from different institutions and going to visit the site yeah it is a it's a long process usually it takes if it's approved if everything is okay if your dossier is, is is complete it would take more than a year for your site to get approved and to be listed on the world heritage list yeah oh that's so cool i mean that i think would be so cool to be a part of i i guess just for those who may be unfamiliar with the work unesco does other than registering sites does this go into a larger process once a site is registered? Does anything happen, or is it does it just get cataloged? Well, UNESCO is a framework, you know, and they don't have a lot of funds, so they work with different institutions and state parties or member parties or state members. Usually, UNESCO works with two independent but related institutions. The one is called ICOMOS. I think that. This is called International Council of Monuments and Sites. It's based in, in Rome, I think, whereas the headquarters of UNESCO are, are in Paris. And then ICROM, I think, is another International Council of... I don't remember exactly the... the so 
e-commerce and e-chrome, basically uh, mostly e-commerce. So once the, the dossier is complete, an inspector comes from on behalf of e-commerce to examine the site and the, the file. And then once the site is approved and, and listed, UNESCO monitors the site. Sometimes they remove it. If the site is in danger, they remove it and they put it in archaeological sites in danger, which is very bad for the state, you know, uh, state parties. It happened in the past. But UNESCO, I mean, the, 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 the fact of being registered on the World Heritage List of UNESCO does not guarantee the preservation, conservation, or appropriate protection, protection of the site. So you need a you need a local institution, national local institution to watch and to take care of the site with appropriate funds because UNESCO doesn't have any any, any fund. Mm. No, I think that's very interesting and it's very helpful to know. I myself just finished my master's and I wrote on the reconversion of Hagia Sophia. And one of the things that I was dealing with was now that UNESCO would no longer be in charge of the site, we've talked, I talked a lot about how the, the preservation standards have gone down. And so it was interesting because as you were talking, I was thinking about my own research and about what happened in, in Turkey. And so I'm assuming that for the sites that you personally worked on or, or know of that got registered, do you feel that those sites have all gotten adequate sort of preservation status and that this isn't something that, you know, we need to be sort of really fighting over the way we do with that particular monument? Yeah, I think that you have to fight because, for example, the site of Pasargadi came in its site of 6th century BC, site of Pasargadi in southern Iran, was registered in, I believe, 2003, early 2000s. And the site has a core area, that's the ruin, you know, the, the area with, with ruins, marked with ruins and ancient structures. And then two or three buffer zones. For example, agriculture, farming is permitted, but you cannot build a high rise, you know, in the proximity of the site or a, a factory or things like that. And it goes against developing projects, you know construction of dams, roads, buildings, development of towns and villages, etc. So uh, there is this challenge. And I know that as we speak, people are fighting to preserve those buffer zones of Iranian archaeological sites, in particular Pasargadi. And because of the development of, of uh, nearby villages, now they are trying to reconsider those buffer zones. But those buffer zones approved by the World Heritage Council, you cannot do anything, you cannot touch them without their approval, and it's a long process. If you do, then they might decide to, to remove the site, and this is very bad. It, it's fascinating to learn more about it, and I think a, a lot of people sort of think of UNESCO as just another one of these big UN bodies that no one really knows what happens or, or you know, what people do or what they do, so it's it's wonderful to be able to ask you these questions and, and have someone who, who knows a little bit more enlighten us. So I want to thank you and I hope our audience is also very appreciative. And now I do want to turn to a specific site that I know you've done some work with, which is Persepolis. Now, 
I know you had a hand in crafting like a 3D version of it. And I believe that was a project for the Getty, was it not? Yes, the site of Persepolis. I was fascinated, as I, as I mentioned before, when I was a kid. My father worked there. That was the last large-scale excavations at the site between 68 and 72, 1972. So he, he took me there and I, I, I became fascinated with the site. It's always been my, my love, this site. Yes, I was really much involved in, in gathering information in connection with the history of archaeological research at Persepolis, which I published a few years ago. And then, uh, of course, with the reconstruction projects, going back to the 17th century, you know, people tried to reimagine these big, magnificent palaces. But the work at the Getty, uh, I was invited by, by the Getty and its director of the Getty Museum, Dr. Tim Potts, to contribute to the 3D reconstruction of the site of Persepolis for what they had or what they called the immersive experience of the site of Persepolis. Of course, every reconstruction, every modern reconstruction of Persepolis is, is based on the studies done by a German architect who worked at Persepolis in the 1930s and who published the book Persepolis Reconstruction in German with detailed measurements and, you know, reliable reconstruction sort of plans and sections of different structures of the site. It's very well detailed. So our reference was that, that book and his work, Friedrich Krafter. But I think that the Getty, the Getty Museum did a, did a wonderful job. Of course, the technical part was not me. It was done by, by, a, by a, an international company, Media Monks or Media Monks. And they worked with the Getty, closely with the Getty and myself to come up with this wonderful reconstruction we saw. I mean, one thing that I loved about it, though, is how immersive it really was. And I love the nuggets of information, how it's so interactable and that you can click on the exact place you want to go. You can go in and you get the cool little text boxes where it gives you all the information. And the only other place I've seen something that immersive and that well-constructed have been sort of, I want to say like video games, because they're the only other sort of entities that have the, the resources to put in that level of technology and detail. But obviously this is not a game and it's it's meant to be more educational. And I was enraptured by it. And, and so I would love to know though, so having been a part of it, is this kind of like something you would love to see used like in the classroom for pedagogy you know like is this a good way of bridging sort of the, the more modern technology we have like like would you put this in your own classroom and say okay students like i want you to go and actually explore the site and you can in this beautiful 3d rendering sure sure you know that visiting uh, visiting visiting ruins is i would say 10 times more educational didactic than than any any classroom but since we cannot go and visit those ruins let's bring them here now we have technology we can do immersive experience yes this is a different feeling this is a different different experience as you as you mentioned 
you know. Yes, I, I showed a clip of, uh, not, not the entire, but uh, uh, a few seconds of the clip to my students to go and watch the immersive experience. And there's also this website, Persepolis 3D, done by two German engineers based on, once again, Crafter's information and book. But then it's just 2D experience. You know, it's a very, very, very good website, Persepolis 3D. But the one that, that we, we did with the Getty or the Getty did was beyond any expectation. This was a wonderful, wonderful reconstruction. And we can do it with, for, you know, for, for other sites, other Iranian sites, like the site of Pasargadi, Tessifah, or the round city of Ardashir at Firuzabad, or even, you know, Islamic sites, the mausoleum at Sultanie or mosques, or even for Hagia Sophia, you know, so there is this potential. I'm curious, if someone came to you and said, I would love to see more sites done, do you anticipate or would you like to maybe see some of the sites from the Gazetteer turned into this big reimagined 3D experience? Yeah, sure, sure. I have a few few in mind. For example, the wonderful Fire Temple of the Sasanians. This is a 6th century fire temple with, a, with an artesian lake, the lake. It's very beautiful and you can do a wonderful immersive experience. Or the Elamite Temple, second millennium BC Elamite Temple of Chobazambil, with a triple wall, with a ziggurat at the center of the site, and you can you can reconstruct a whole procession of visitors, pilgrims to the site. Isn't it wonderful? I like how you've seen what we can do, right, with the right resources and you know whatever it takes to sort of build this immersive experience but you know i i think that like this would be an amazing more academically focused more accurate counter to all the bad representations that we see in modern media today you know i think i feel like scholars of iranian studies and just more generally the ancient world are very tired of seeing like the bad 300s or the bad x y or z's where you're like okay that's not at all what you know i'd like to show so i think in what you've been able to be a part of i think is, is going to be a wonderful counter to that if we can do more i which i hope that that you'll be able to do yeah you can you can even do games you can actually make video games based on these immersive you know reconstructions or experience you can visit persepolis you can play at persepolis or you can reconstruct Alexander's approach to the site, you know, with his army or a procession in front of King Xerxes. That would be wonderful. And people or even kids can can play. And this, of course, this is for, this is entertainment, but at the same time, it's educational too. You know, you can send it to schools and have kids watch these wonderful sites and have this very, very touchy experience. That's what they did for, I'm sure you have for, there was an immersive, I think, exhibition for Van Gogh with lights. And then another one was, was for the tomb of Tutankhamun, I think. So, yeah, why not Persepolis? <laughs> we talked a lot about different sites and we've talked a lot about the ones that you enjoy. So I'm curious to put a little different spin on that and ask you, 
what is a site that you believe more people should know of or be interested in, but you can't use your favorite sites? Another site, aside from Persepolis, I mentioned Tahtis Suleiman is another site. And it's uh, it's a bit remote outside the usual, you know, tourist road going down to the south. It's in the northwest. So that'd be wonderful to to visit and revisit and see. Another site I mentioned was this great temple, Ilamite Temple at Chorazambil. This is once again a remote site. It's located in the southwest. You can't go. It's too hot to go visit that site in, in the summer. It's it's very hot. So the season would be, you know, October to, I would say, to April or May. These are the sites you can, you know, uh, I can mention. But then we have we have cities, beautiful cities. The city of Isfahan. It's wonderful mosques and palaces. I mean, the, the whole layout of the city is beautiful. The city of Yaz is a picturesque city. And in the countryside, you have caravanserais, beautiful caravanserais, hostels. You know, they go back to the 12th century. Some of them. So these are wonderful sites. You can you know you can visit in person or virtually. And part of me asking this is because as someone who specializes in Iranian archaeology, which there's not a lot of people in the world, right, who really specialize in this. So how often do you find that people confuse these wonderful Iranian sites with sites in Mesopotamia? You know, like, is it common as an archaeologist to get questions of, oh, you know, oh, teach me about, and then they say something in Assyria or something Babylonian. And do you find yourself having to correct people and say, no, 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 that's very, that's next door, but not what I do. Yeah, more often than before. Of course, if you if you open a general book in ancient history, you have what? You have ancient Egypt, you have ancient Greece, ancient Mesopotamia, Sumerians, Babylonians, and then they, they jump to the Indus Valley if they do. I think that anything beyond the Tigris would would be considered unknown or unimportant or insignificant. So yeah, there's a big gap in I would say even recent academia and academic publications because they they basically deal with Mesopotamia, ancient Egypt, of course the area of the Syria Palestine, the Levant area, and ancient Greece. I understand, I guess, why, just looking at how people's interests go and, and, and how research in these places have been. But as someone originally, family and all, from Iran, like, does it ever get frustrating that people kind of want to jump over ancient Iran, even though they have quite significant notable historical sites and figures? And, I mean, I feel like people might, know the names of sites in ancient Iran and then not even realize it and attribute it to somewhere else. Like, does that ever get frustrating for you? A little bit, yes, a little bit. But I can't blame them, you know. This is maybe our fault, academics and scholars, uh, who don't really disseminate our work and who we don't really reach out the general public. 
sometimes we are in busy with, with doing our own things and publications, specialized reports and articles. Yes, but and and another problem is this is a country you cannot visit easily. So is Iraq, Mesopotamia, Syria. So is Syria. But then because of the the sheer importance of those Mesopotamian sites being, you know, the, the foundation of modern civilization or human civilization, let's say, as well as Egypt, Egyptian civilization and, and Greek civilization. So uh, they're considered to be, you know, to be included in even, you know, school textbooks, history books. So my, my daughter's history book, uh, I remember, I don't know, fourth fourth grade, fifth grade was, was just ancient Mesopotamia, the cradle of civilization, Greece and Egypt. And that was it. Oh, that would be incredibly frustrating. Oh, that's, I mean, and I wonder, and, and you're in the unique position of having seen both, right, the education systems from three different unique places in Iran, in Western Europe, let's call it, and then here in the States. And I wonder, is the gap that big everywhere is it a bit smaller over in europe just due to proximity like is is our general sort of ignorance let's say accidental ignorance do you find that it's like worse over here is it like a difference in education system i'm i'm very curious you know why is it that we tend to skip over i'm you know do, do like do european textbooks skip over ancient iran at all Yes, sometimes there's a difference of, of course, there, there are two different schools of education in, in Europe and in the, in North America. But it's a sort of general gap, you know, in, in the educational system for the reasons I, I, I mentioned some of them. But because the European countries are or were much more involved in, let's say, archaeology of the ancient Near East, for example, they would go to, to Mesopotamia, to, to Iran, to Anatolia and Egypt, uh, more often than American teams. Of course, there is a there's an awareness of those countries being important in, in the sort of general trajectory of, of human civilization and, and history. That's all I can say, you know, but yes, there's a general eagerness. Well, at least we know that the problem is universal, so hopefully we can universally work to make learning about ancient Iran easier, hopefully, in the future. So, I mean, there's so much more that we could get into that we don't really have time for, unfortunately. But Interested in learning more about the wonders of ancient Persia? visit the UCLA Archaeological Gazetteer of Iran. The Gazetteer digitally preserves famous locations, world heritage sites, and lesser-known areas from all time periods of ancient Iranian history. You can explore using the interactive map or visit the encyclopedic catalog for updates to the ever-growing list of archaeological sites. Visit www.arangazetteer.ucla.edu and learn more about what the Archaeological Gazetteer of Iran has to offer. One thing I do want to I leave you with, right, are, are two questions that I hope our audience will also want to ponder as well. And the first of, of these are, 
what in your opinion is the greatest legacy left to us from ancient Persia? Maybe I'm not very well placed to to answer this question, but I try my best. Persia has always been a, a crossroad of of cultures. So this is the sort of, you know, it's a plateau. So from, from the Mediterranean, you can travel roughly easily all the way down to, to Mesopotamia, the plains of Mesopotamia. And all of a sudden, you have a plateau, you have mountains in Iran. It's an Iranian plateau. Uh, well, at the first sight, it, it looks like a barrier. But then it is not. It is just a like a sponge uh, that absorbs different cultures from different civilizations. You have Mesopotamian civilizations, the west side, and you have the Indus civilization, the east side. And Iran has always played the role of a, I would say, an intermediary, but at the same time, a very important body of cultures and civilizations. You know, because of the geography of this country, we don't have a single, let's say, people or civilization dominating the others, like the Sumerians, Babylonians. We don't have them until they come of the just Persians and the Medes, the Persians, much later. Once they came, they unified the whole country and the whole the whole region of Southwest Asia. And I think that that's, that's one of their legacy. And another persisting pattern of Iranian civilization is this, I would say, Iranian-ness, you know. We kept our language more or less intact. And we kept our civilization more or less intact. I would say intact. Because the other parts, of the whole other regions, other countries, let's say, in, in modern times, they changed. They underwent a series of changes. You know, but Iran has conserved or preserved its Iranian culture and more importantly, its its language. Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to find continuity from ancient times, you know, through through history leading up to now. But yeah, no, it's it's remarkable the influence they had and that they were able to sort of keep certain things together. So. Yeah, even the name, the name of uh, countries, Mesopotamia, I mean, you have Syria in the north and Iraq in, in the south, different names. You have countries like Afghanistan, Pakistan. So they they chose different names for their modern countries. But Iran has always been, you know, Iran. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's wonderful. And the second question I have for you is what, in your opinion, would be the best legacy that we can leave for future students of Iranian studies? I think that from my point of view, this Gazetteer project is is one of the leading projects I have ever, uh, one of the most influential and important projects I've ever, ever had. Just preserving, because in a way we are preserving knowledge we're preserving those remains virtually because we don't know what's going to happen to those sites in coming years or coming hundred years from now so you're, this is a i think this is a preservation conservation aspect and I'm, I'm i'm very happy with it yeah i think i i agree i don't i can't think of any other such project for 
other ancient fields that aim to be this ambitious and this sort of encompassing and would have as much potential. So I actually really hope that other fields will sort of take notice of the gazetteer and say, you know what, this is a really great idea. And I hope that that is a legacy that you can leave for us and that other fields will be inspired by. And I hope that maybe we have other gazetteer-like things for other areas of the world for other ancient studies because man would I love and I think a lot of other people would love to be able to look at some database and say these are all the Greek sites the Egyptian ones the Persian ones the I don't know ancient Chinese ones Uh, I think it's a wonderful project and I'm so very happy that you're here with us working on all these amazing projects in addition to teaching classes and doing all the other wonderful wonderful things that you do. Thank you. It's a privilege to be to be here at UCLA and in the center. It's a it's a wonderful, exceedingly promising environment, and I'm 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 delighted to be here. Thank you. Well, I couldn't agree more. So thank you once again for joining me on our wonderful podcast. And I hope you will return and talk to us with any cool updates in the future about your projects. Thank you so much, Dixie. Legacies of Ancient Persia is a Porta Vood podcast production, hosted and edited by Lexi Henning, with select episodes co-hosted by Marissa Stevens. Cover art provided by Hadley Leesman and original music by Brent Arhart. Established in 2017 as the premier research center for the study of ancient Iran, the mission of the Porta Vood Institute for the Study of the Iranian World is to engage in transformative research on all aspects of Iranian antiquity, including its reception in the medieval and modern periods, by expanding on the traditional domains of old Iranian studies and promoting cross-cultural and interdisciplinary scholarship. Thanks for listening to our show. It's available to stream on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to follow us on social media at Portavood Institute and at Portavood UCLA. Or visit our website, portavood.ucla.edu. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review us. For podcast inquiries or questions about the Portavood Institute, please email us at portavoodpodcastproduction at gmail.com. We'll see you next time as we continue our deep dive into the legacies of ancient Persia.